The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, at verse 1. Hebrews, chapter 8, reading the entire chapter. We've seen in this book that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. And we saw last week that his priesthood is superior to that of Levi in the Old Testament. And so we come to chapter 8, where we see this great comparison and contrast to the old covenant and the promise of the new. Let us hear God's word. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his inerrant word. 
Last week, Patty and I got a copy of the new Parade of Homes flyer in the newspaper. And for those who might not know, that's a display of some of the best new homes that local contractors have built over the past year. The flyer does a good job of setting forth all the wonderful features of these really nice homes in a variety of price ranges, all the latest in kitchens and flooring and master bedroom suites and so on. You might call these benefits or even blessings of a brand new parade of home homes. Well, in our passage, we see the author of Hebrews is reminding us of the blessings of something that far surpasses the parade of homes, the new covenant. And we want to look at our text under three headings. The weakness of the old covenant, first. Secondly, the blessings of the new covenant. And then finally, the mediator of the new covenant. We want to start on our first point with the weakness of the old covenant. Covenant, And we're approaching our text in a little bit unusual way. We're jumping in in the middle where the author supports what he says in the first part of our text with this extensive Old Testament quotation from the prophet Jeremiah, familiar passage about the new covenant. But notice how he introduces it in verse 7. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So he says there's something at fault here, and he makes it clear in verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says. And he describes all of this. And at the end of verse 9, For they did not continue in my covenant. The old covenant was weak because of the weakness or the sinfulness of human beings. We must understand the context of this wonderful prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah was prophesying at the time of the final days of the nation of Judah, a very dark time when it was becoming more and more evident that the nation was going to be destroyed and taken into captivity, which actually occurred. You can read about it in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah's lifetime. And so Jerusalem was finally destroyed, and the people of the nation were carried into captivity to Babylon. The outpouring of God on his covenant people of all the curses of the covenant that you read in Deuteronomy, because of the people's unfaithfulness and their disobedience, the culmination of what we would see as hundreds of years of unbelief and idolatry. Yes, there were times of revival and turning back to God, but again and again the people turned away, and it seems that every time it got worse. And finally, the covenant curses fall completely, but not without hope. And so the prophet Jeremiah speaks prophecies of hope and the future as well. But the problem we see here in this context is not with the Old Testament covenant as well, the Mosaic covenant, but the fault was with the people. They did not continue in the covenant. Now understand that the Mosaic covenant was 
a covenant of grace. It was an expansion of the same covenant given to Adam and Eve when they first sinned and the first promise of the gospel was given in Genesis 3. It was an expansion of the covenant to Noah and the covenant promises to Abraham. All these were one covenant of grace, different administrations of that one covenant of grace. But the Mosaic covenant given by Moses, given to Moses from God on the mountain, remember it was at a time when God had just graciously delivered the Israelites out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt. And the plagues had been sent, but they had been spared. The Passover had taken place. They had been spared by the the blood of the Passover lamb. There was that amazing event of the Red Sea and the people passing through on dry ground and being saved, this great song of deliverance. And so God graciously saves the people and delivers them, and that is the time at which he established his covenant with them this new administration of the covenant of grace. But do the people keep the covenant? Well, we all know the answer. No, even before Moses comes down from the mountain where the covenant is being given and the the tablets of the Ten Commandments are being engraved on stones and given to him, they are already breaking the covenant. Aaron is making the golden calf. The people are committing idolatry. And so Moses comes down, and in his anger and distress, he smashes the two tablets, and he has to go up on the mountain again. But that initial foretaste of what would become repeated and perennial unfaithfulness of the people is carried out over the next hundreds of years, almost a thousand years before Jerusalem was finally destroyed at this point. The fault wasn't the covenant. It was a covenant of grace. But that covenant looked ahead to the one great sacrifice that would need to be made, the sacrifice of Christ. The covenant under Moses primarily brought about an awareness of sin. It showed the holy nature of God, and it pointed to the Messiah to come. The old covenant did not have the power to impart life, the power for for people to begin to truly obey the law of God. Or we might say more accurately, the old covenant under Moses only imparted such inner transformation in a way that anticipated the coming of Christ. It was limited It was not the age of fulfillment. It was the age of promise. In that sense, that covenant was weak. Jesus had not yet come in all the power of his saving person and work. That is the great contrast that the author of Hebrews is making here. And why would the Hebrew Christians want to go back to the old covenant when the new has come? It's similar to what Paul writes in Romans 8 when he's talking about life in the Spirit and he he begins to talk about the fact that there's no condemnation. He says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, 
Listen to what he's saying here. God has done what the law, speaking of the Mosaic law, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Do you hear that? That's the same thing that the author to Hebrews is saying, that the Old Testament law was weak in this sense, not because there was any flaw or fault in the law, but Paul puts his finger on it. It was weakened by the flesh, sinful human nature. So what God has done, what the law could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul is saying the same thing. We're going to see the promises of the new covenant, the law written on the heart. The new covenant is much better, but the problem with the old covenant was not with the covenant itself. It was the problem of the people's sinful hearts. And only Jesus Christ was the one who perfectly kept the covenant, all the demands of the covenant, he fulfilled. And praise be to God that he did that on our behalf to save us. Stop and think about this first point. Have you come to God confessing that you are unable to keep God's holy law, his righteous law? We are all covenant breakers by nature. You know, isn't it amazing how instinctively we all know something of the law of God? We can be so quick to condemn others when we see them breaking the law in some way, but do we tend to excuse our own sin? With children, this especially comes out. Any parent knows this. You see two children fighting over a toy, and the one says to the other, or says to his mom, Mom, he stole my toy. You know, it's put in the most... In, in indicative way that, you know, he's indicted for this sin of theft. And, you know, the other one replies, no, mom, I was just borrowing it. You know, uh, kids have a great way to reason and argue. It shows our own hearts. Or, or we might say um, about someone when they shade the truth, that's a lie. But, of course, if we do it, we might put it in different terms. We might say, well, I said that, that, that was a mistake, what I said, or I was exaggerating a little bit. We wouldn't, wouldn't call it a lie. That's what we tend to do. We tend to minimize our sin. The Old Testament law brought a ministry of condemnation because it exposed sin for what it was. But it was weak in that it was pointing ahead and waiting for the fulfillment in the coming of Christ. And that brings us to our second point, the better promises of the new covenant. Verses 9 through 12. Here we see the covenant repeated, and the author goes to the length to write out the Old Testament promise. These promises, and we see them set forward here. One was the promise of God's inner work, his transforming work, really the the promise of the Holy Spirit's transforming work, God's promise to change our hearts and give us a desire and a heart to love and obey him. The problem with the Mosaic Covenant was that it was written on tablets of stone. That was an amazing thing and a great gift, 
But if anything was written on the hearts of the people, Jeremiah says it was their own sin. Jeremiah 17.1 says this, Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts. Do you hear that? What an, what an indictment. It's not that the law of God was engraved on their hearts, but their sin was carved on their heart with an iron tool. With the new covenant, God solved the problem of our sinful hearts by giving his children new hearts and new minds. Look how it says in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. Calvin comments on the text this way. He says, the new covenant penetrates into the heart and reforms all the inward faculties so that obedience is rendered to the righteousness of God. Of course, the old covenant was not abolished in that sense. The new covenant fulfilled the old. It was not contrary to the old But the difference is that the new covenant brings the law from the outside in an external way to the inside of our hearts. And actually, this promise of writing the law in their minds and hearts is a promise about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament era. It's interesting, in John chapter 7, when we find that Jesus has gone up to the temple for one of the great feasts, And it's very likely that when he says this, he's in the temple still. We just imagine him with all the temple priests doing their sacrifices, carrying out their ordained ministry under the old covenant. There is Jesus, the fulfillment of it all in person. And on that last day of the feast, John 7.37 says, the great day, can you imagine this? Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What a different change of heart that is. And the Apostle John comments on this. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That doesn't mean that the Spirit wasn't at work at all in the Old Testament time. There are lots of references in the Old Testament to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had to work in people's lives to give them faith, to trust Jesus Christ, to look ahead to the Messiah. So it wasn't as if there was no work of the Spirit, but it's, it's the inauguration, it's the dawn of all the fulfillment. Jesus is standing and saying, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow living water. What a blessing. The regeneration the Spirit of God gives and this newness of life in Christ. And as we grow in Christ and walk in the Spirit and know God's Word, that that inward transformation becomes more and more a reality. Yes, all believers still sin. We grieve over that. We long for seeing Jesus face to face when we will be finally done with sin. But there is real change that takes place. Here's the first blessing then. I will put my law in their minds 
and write it on their hearts. And my question of application for you under this point is, has this happened to you? Have you been born of the Spirit? Has the Spirit come to dwell within you and started to write His law, His word on your heart? I'm not saying that you have to have a dramatic conversion experience. Not every conversion experience is dramatic. But this is the essence of conversion, a radical inward change, a turning away from sin and selfishness and a turning to God through Christ so that there's a new delight in the law of God, a new delight in His Word. I remember as a teenager when I came to Christ just being so surprised by this desire I had to read the Bible. I'd been in church every Sunday my whole life, but now there was this new desire, a new heart. I didn't understand a lot of what the Bible said, but I had a desire. Is that the reality in your heart and life? The new covenant promises inner transformation. But there's also this promise in verses 10 and 11 of knowing God himself. The promise that God will be our God. Look at the end of verse 10. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is a repeated promise of the covenant of grace. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Whenever God makes a covenant with his people, what he is really giving them is himself. That's at the very heart of the blessings that God gives. There's no greater blessing than God himself and knowing him. This is the culmination in the New Testament of what was spoken in the Old Testament. This promise was given to Abraham, but it's finally being fulfilled in a new way. I could paraphrase it by saying it means, I will be your God. That is, I will use all that I am as God all my wisdom, all my power, all my love to see to it that you remain my people. All that I am as God, I exert for your good that you might know me. What a promise this is. God is our God. We have a claim on him in this sense. And we are God's people. He has a claim on us. And what an amazing grace this is that we belong to God in a mutual relationship of love and intimacy with God. Another way Scripture describes this relationship is that God is for us in Christ. In Romans 8, one of the culminating messages of that chapter is that if God is for us, who can be against us? that we belong to God and that all is essentially right with our souls if that is the case. Do you receive and realize the great comfort of this promise of the new covenant? And we know that the Bible says God is sovereign over everything. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to his purpose. And so if he is our God, we may trust in him and in his sovereign work Everything he brings in my life is ultimately for my good, even when we can't see it, even in the darkest hour of our life. This is the promise that God is with us. You know, it's hard to imagine the awful suffering that the people of Judah went through with the captivity, with the exile, the nation carried away, the temple 
destroyed. Jerusalem turned into a pile of rubble. Many of the people killed, almost all of them enslaved and dragged away, and a remnant, a very small remnant was left. Jeremiah was there with his small remnant in a land that that was now desolate. Imagine it. Last week, uh, probably all of you know, was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and in commemoration, I had to reread one of my favorite World War II books. But as I thought about it and, and thanked God for the freedom and the heritage we have, I was struck again by the terrible suffering of that time. Probably about 80 million people died worldwide in that war. That was 3% of the population of the world at that time. Just think of the carnage of war itself and the Holocaust, which we know about, and and the real plight of approximately 12 million people in Europe alone that were displaced and were just essentially walking along the roads with nothing for weeks and months on end, trying to get back to wherever they were from or someplace to be safe. Well, think of the captivity that the Jews went through in that same light, awful suffering, And added to it this sense of being chastened by God, of being rejected by God. But in the new covenant, God is affirming that this was not the end. This was all for the ultimate blessing eventually of his people. And he is still their God. And throughout all of that, he he maintained a remnant through that time. And this promise in the New Testament becomes much wider in scope. In verse 11, it says, They will not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. There's this sense of not even needing to be taught. It doesn't mean that absolutely, because we have the need for teachers and preachers in the church, of course, in this New Testament time. But rather, he's speaking of the anointing of the Spirit, which brings illumination to the Word of God, the work of the Spirit, this wonderful ministry by which the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds to give us understanding, right understanding of the Word of God. Every child of God is given the privilege of this work of the Spirit. And then there's this final promise of forgiveness of sins in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. It's probably last because of emphasis, because it speaks of really the way of entrance into this right relationship with God. Anyone who wants to be in a right relationship to God has to have some solution to the problem of their sins which keep us from God. And God is here promising forgiveness of sins. And the new covenant is so much better than the old because Christ the mediator has come once for all. Jesus has died on the cross, the Passover lamb, sacrificed for us that we might be cleansed. You might be thinking about all these blessings of the new covenant that Jeremiah sets forth. And you might be thinking, well, I am not good enough. I don't deserve that. And that is true for all of us. I hope that you're hearing that gospel truth. It is all by grace. We sang Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton knew what it was to be a sinner far from God, and essentially we are all with him. We're wretches apart from the grace of God. 
The promise of the new covenant is that God cleanses us of our iniquities. And this brings us to our final point, point number three. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. We see it in verses one through six where the author is really giving us the main point of what he's saying. It's not often that you have in the Bible this statement about the main point. In fact, you could translate verse one. Now, the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. What a, what a way to describe Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand, really essentially on the throne with him. The throne of the majesty in heaven. It denotes power and authority, dominion. The right hand is the position of privilege and authority. Now Jesus is seated, it says, The Old Testament priests always had to stand. They were always standing. They never sat in the tabernacle or in the temple. They they stood. They, They weren't seated. Jesus finished his work. He offered himself, and now he is seated, and he carries on this ministry. It talks about his ministry, verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, speaking about the presence of God. And then in verses 3 through 5, the author is talking about all the Old Testament sacrifices, the temple, the tabernacle, all of that was, he says in verse 5, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And then in verse 6, we see again this word ministry, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent then the old, as the covenant he mediates, is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus has this ministry. Jesus does not offer any more sacrifices in heaven. He's seated there. It's once for all, but he continues to mediate, to minister the blessings of the new covenant to his people. And so the author goes into that. He describes these promises. The truth that Jesus Christ is seated in heaven is the source of power and blessing for every believer. Ephesians 1.3 says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ And essentially, it's saying we're seated with Christ there now. As Christians, we often feel like, boy, I sure don't feel like that's true for me. I struggle. Life is hard. There are problems. There are temptations. I still fall into sin. But the Bible says our great high priest, the one who is seated at the Father's right hand, pours blessing upon us. The temptation for these Christians And the temptation for us is to look too much on the earthly, to be too discouraged from not seeing the final consummation immediately. They were undergoing persecution. They were undergoing hardship. We experience hardship as well, maybe not as bad as what they went through. But the author is saying to them, don't go back to the shadows. Don't go back to the copies 
Go to the reality. Go to heaven. Go to Jesus. He is seated there. He is our heavenly high priest. Go to him for him to pour out blessing in your time of need. Live in the knowledge of this heavenly hope in the fullness of our present heavenly blessing in Christ. Last year, Patty and I broke down and toured one of the houses in the Parade of Homes. We couldn't resist. We saw it in the news, that farmhouse in northern Mannheim Township that needed to be moved and was purchased and moved a little bit down the road to a different site. It had all been, re- been redone. So we toured that, and there was a mob touring that house. We saw some of you touring that house as well. Um, it was built originally in the 1800s, but now this farmhouse was completely redone inside. It was a marvel. Of course, it was already purchased, so, you know. I don't know who moved in there. Maybe, maybe some of you know. But it was amazing. State-of-the-art everything. And the inside room arrangement all moved around to make it really modern and like you would like it now. The kitchen was real big. Everything your heart could desire in a house. We toured it. You could say, in a way, that farmhouse illustrates the new covenant. From the outside, many of the same features of the old, it looked like an old farmhouse. It still does. But inside, radically new and transformed. But we all know the new covenant of God through Jesus Christ offers much, much, much better blessings than any house could ever bring. The new covenant offers a life lived in fellowship with God himself. Sins forgiven, the law written on our hearts, the spirit dwelling in us, living water, and knowledge of the true God all to be consummated when we see Jesus face to face. If you haven't trusted in him, may you put your hope, your trust, your only hope for security in heaven in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Father, we say with the hymn, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Lord, may that be the true cry of each one of our hearts. Please work in us by your Spirit. Work that new life that only the Holy Spirit gives, that our eyes might be fixed on you here, now, and forever, we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.